This week on Plot Points Podcast, we welcome back Shadia. We discuss the themes, style, and surprises of the Coen brothers, and we learn who is on Mark's Hall Pass list. Jason Lavar! This is Plot Points Podcast. Plot Points Podcast, if I could speak. We're here in beautiful downtown Newport Beach. Uh, we're a little little um, different this week. I, if this podcast doesn't sound great, it's my fault because I'm doing all the uh, engineering because Toby's uh, out doing other things, uh, which I'm not going to tell you. You just have to ask him. But um, we're not going to be that much different because we have Shadia Safernia with us. Did I pronounce that right? Safernia. Safernia. Okay. It's a tough last name. Screw it. <laughs> it's really a beautiful name. I, I hate screwing it up. Oh, you're not the only one. Oh, well. Okay. Well, that makes me feel good. Um, and uh, Mary Claire Anderson, as usual. Hi. But uh, I think our next podcast, she won't be here um, because she's got uh, some things going on in her personal life. Yeah, I'm getting married. So. Oh, yeah. Wow, that silly thing. <laughs> Somewhat that you're of doing. a priority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, we talked a little before the cast. I'm sure you're going to be happy when, when you're finally done with all that because you're, you're very hands on with that, right? Yeah, I like to control every aspect of the process, and so uh, that which just means I'm doing all of it <laughs> with the support of my mother um, and family. But um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to having free time and not going to Michael's five times a week um, or looking at Excel sheets <laughs> or every FedEx day. or um, been to FedEx a few times. Um, so yeah, very eager to get back to doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so so while I have um, while we have our wonderful Shadia here, I want to talk uh, both to both of you a little bit. Bit. What was that ding? Um, a little uh, talk to you both about uh, a short film that Shadi just showed. Shot. Shadi just shot. Uh, she is a wondrous director. She needs to go viral. So if anybody wants, I do uh, need to go viral. Yeah, I need, need to, help going talk. viral. Which brings us to the point that OC Screenwriters does have a viral video expert coming up on November 11th. So. Yeah, we're hosting a brunch. Uh, so a new media expert. His name is Professor Frank Shindamo. 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 Um, who, yeah, teaches viral and how to kind of rise above the noise in today's entertainment world. So he's definitely going to be helpful uh, for all of those who are trying to break in, um, especially for people who are focusing on shorts. Um, like? So. Do we know anybody like, like that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shadia, just uh, uh, give us a little bit of background and, and this latest one you did. You also had uh, Mary Claire... Uh, you had Mary Claire doing the... I was the... fortunate enough for MC to uh, help produce on day two. Um, so I did this whole short because I wanted to um, apply for the Francis Ford Coppola Short Film Festival. And it actually wasn't... The script that I was starting off with was completely different. And Is this something you ran through the class? I did. Okay. I did. It was about a girl picturing a guy in different forms, and as she's having a conversation with him, he transforms to her through different types of oh, guys, stereotypical yeah, guys. Right. And I was, I kept running into roadblocks, um, and I really hit the wall once I was talking to actors, and they just had no clue where I was going with it. And I like the character's motivation, exactly, mm-hmm. or like how I was going to show this visually. 
Um, and so I had to make an executive decision, so to speak, and I decided to scrap it. Just because I had to make so many compromises uh, around the location we were shooting, I had to change a couple things, and it just ultimately threw off my story. So I was inspired by the location we shot at the Lost Bean, a coffee house, and I thought, well, what kind of story can I come up with here? And so the whole story was really around, centered around an open mic night at a coffee house. Oh, wow. It's about a barista who works at the Lost Bean. It's about the guy who performs at the open mic, and so kind of her fixation and her infatuation with him. Okay. And so, yeah, she sees him uh, yeah. <laughs> a certain way, but, you know, obviously has never interacted with him or doesn't know him well, so doesn't know the real Dean is that character's name. And so as she kind of goes through the motions and it becomes much too real for her, like her vision of their relationship is much more interesting than the actuality of it. Um, and so, but I, I understand what you're saying because it, it was hard to, to show sort of that transition yeah. um, and understand maybe why that transition was happening from this character's perspective. But Shadi is really great. She has, like, she very much knows what she wants on set, which is really, really helpful to have a director that has an absolute, true, real vision of how this should look and feel. Sometimes it's just harder to translate that, you know, with your crew. And so that, yeah. I, I was brought on late just to help because we were on kind of day two for shooting. And so I just, like, she just needed help with, like, logistics. I and did. <laughs> and day two wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. We were supposed to knock it out in one night. Mm. And we weren't able to just because of, you know, things, unexpected things that happened. So we had to do a day two. And MC came in, like, probably the week before. And I told her, I just need someone to help me get things done and she's really good at that and you she just, was really good on set. You needed a bitch in other words. I needed someone <laughs> to help me stay organized. Which I was terrific at. Yeah, so. you, <laughs> she was you, really good at you it. You excel at that. Yeah because I as a director I just always want to do everything right. and when you're on set you realize I can't do everything. Well do you have do you usually use a first AD because first AD is the stick. That's the person that's supposed to yell at the cast, the crew. I do. The first AD does it when we're on set but I needed someone who was going to be with me from the inception mm. of coming to production meetings, taking notes, mm -hmm. which she was really good at, yeah. giving me an overview, reminding me, hey, what is it that we still need to get done? So you need someone from the beginning with you until the end. And the first AD did that while we were on set, but I needed someone with me from the beginning, and she was really good at that. Mm. Yeah, well, because Shadia, you know, she, you know, she... I was just really, you know, because she's sort of in the shots, you know, she's seeing everything visually and, and she needs to be very present there with sort of the actors and with people around her. But, you know, I was there to sort of say, okay, like these are the shots like we've gotten. We still need to do these. Here's the timing of this. This actor's ready. Okay. The extras can go, you know, just the sort of the, like the little things that she shouldn't have to think about when, you know, she's kind of doing um, the motions of directing and, and working really closely with the actors, uh, especially when we were on a time crunch for, for day two. So, um, so I was there mostly, yeah, just to boss people around which again yeah, really which good is, yeah that's that your, naturally to me that's your wheelhouse <laughs> i loved it yeah. all right uh, uh, well uh so when will when and where would we be able to see this it will be on youtube pretty soon we are done what's the channel um it's actually under my name okay so, so i'll post that me. i'll post that in the show notes if you guys want to uh, hook it up yeah, so you can take a look at what we did. Yeah. It's great. Even the rough cut that when I first saw it from just the day one show, I was impressed. Like it's she was very kind. No, honestly. no, no. I was impressed. Like, and I did. No, she, she had I've a great seen, crew yeah, around I've her as her well. Work. Like, it's, yeah, it, there were, I was because I, I had known Shadia as a director, but to really see her in action and to see, yeah, again, sort of the rough cut, I was like, wow, this is real and it's really good. So, yeah, yeah she, I'm I, hoping. I, I like your vision. Today. I don't Thank always you. understand it. Yeah, it, I'm starting to learn how to work out the kinks there too. Yeah. Um, 
it's funny, directing probably has taught me the most about screenwriting. Really? It does, because I remember um, us actually shooting it, and some people would be confused about the motivation and all these things while we're on set. And those are things you really have to knock out in the script beforehand, Mm -hmm. and doing it on set just delays you, and you have to, like, repeat yourself over and over, and then you search for it in the edit. So it really taught me a lesson. Every time I get on set or in the editing room, it always teaches me more about screenwriting and how everything needs to be set in stone before you try to fix it in post. Mm. Okay. Um, so moving on, this is a little bit of a third rail topic. I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to be happy about keeping it or not keeping it. Uh, but the, what, what struck me this morning, there was more information about Harvey Weinstein and Miramax. Uh, well, I guess he doesn't own Miramax anymore, but, um, Dimension and the Weinstein Company. And, of course, this is a man many consider a genius. Um, it's hard to argue his success. He's had some, some really amazing film. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis has been quoted as saying, uh, the, only, the only good thing about you is you can pick movies and scripts, otherwise you're worthless. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harvey thought that was great, and he says it to everybody, so I'm not really saying anything bad about him. Uh, and that brings up the topic of um, this is a very small town, and disrespecting people in the business, you do it at um, at you know at your um, at your own risk, because uh, there's a lot of repercussions for talking bad about people. So my question isn't about Harvey or Miramax or any of that stuff. My question is about double standards. Is there and and since we have two women on the podcast today, I think we have a unique perspective. Do you guys feel like there's a double standard? Uh, for liberal liberals as opposed to conservatives like Bill O'Reilly who got, you know, lambasted or are we overwrought about this whole thing or is this a real problem? I mean, however you guys want to weigh in on this, I'm happy to hear what you have to say. They're looking at each other. <laughs> I'm kind of like, where do I start? Um, well, do you think there's a double standard for conservatives and liberals? I think- Absolutely. And I think really the first step is admitting it. <laughs> I, I do truly think there are problems. I think it's on, on both sides, I mean, for sure. But I do think, I mean, yeah, it depends a little bit on the situation when you're looking at, I mean, when you're looking at each situation, uh, truly each kind of person. Um, I mean, Bill O'Reilly is very entrenched in, you know, one specific sector. I mean, he touches, I mean, he's a, he was a very, very powerful man overall, but, you know, really aligned with sort of the new sector etc. Um, whereas Harvey Weinstein really touches all of Hollywood. I mean, truly, I mean, working with some of the best, you know, other producers, um, editors, actors, screenwriters, um, and is a big box office deal. Um, and Hollywood, you know, kind of bleeds into other aspects, you know, of, of our culture as well. And so, um, so it really is sort of a bigger downfall. I kind of aligned it more with like a Roger Ailes in some sense, but, um, because but, Ailes was in entertainment or, yeah. And, and really, a bigger power player, you know, working with other talent, um, and, and really, again, touching a lot of different facets of, of, of business. But, um, but I do think, yeah, we need to take a harder look, um, at how we treat these, um, things from, yeah, from a liberal perspective. Um, you know, we're a lot of times, you know, more correlated with being, you know, obviously progressive and more welcome and calling to light, you know, some of these bigger issues of sexual harassment of, uh, of just problems that we're facing, um, you know, in terms of really all things. And so I, I think, yeah, I mean, definitely there should be a firestorm around this from their perspective also. Right. It's not, 
it's not something we can ignore, but has anybody come out? Um, to my knowledge, very few people have come out against this. Whereas- well, I think there, there have been a few women, um, a few, especially some that were named, obviously, within the different settlement right. cases that he had. Um, but also people like Brie Larson, so Rose McGowan, Ashley, uh, Ashley Judd yeah, she was, uh, um, have uh, all talked about it. But yeah, I mean, there have definitely been some bigger silences alongside of some other actresses, alongside of some bigger players in Hollywood as well. I'm, and I think... Sometimes, you know, I'm kind of like, maybe they don't know how to react. You know, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I think this has been something that's been going on for a really long time. Um, And so it almost makes them a little bit complicit, um, you know, for not maybe calling it to light. Um, And so. But let me ask you a question. It should, if this is a, if this is a problem and it, and it affects women, should these women who are bringing these suits be silent after the, I mean, most of them sign Mm non-disclosure Or, or whatever, is that is that appropriate? Or, I mean, how does that solve the problem? It doesn't. I mean, yeah, because they want to work, and that's 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 the problem. And it, it took, like, Ashley Judd, I believe, like, 20 years to come to light with this, and she did it kind of hush-hush in an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does take a long time, and I think you're right. I think they are very protective of their careers and their image, and I think that's one of the biggest things. Well, they're they're not as protective as... I mean, they're bringing suit against a sexual harassment, and obviously they paid off, just like Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes. For years, they paid these women off to keep silent. So, I mean, they're not that protective, but at the same time, they're not saying they're not. I think they're not solving the problem. They're not, but I do think. I mean, it's really tough, um, you know, because there. I think there's some. Who knows? I mean, I've I've never personally gone through something as, you know difficult as maybe Ashley Judd here or, you know, some of these people, especially, and even in like the Bill Cosby case or the Roger Ailes, I've never had a point where I really truly thought like I needed to go to somebody about, you know, a certain case or a certain incident. Um, because I think, so I don't know totally what it's like to be in their shoes, but I do also think there's a deep sense of shame, you know, when it comes to that type of behavior. And also when you're going up against a a really, really powerful man who is just going to call you a liar or say you brought it on yourself or not give you roles or... Yeah, he's um, got a lot of... He had a lot of power. He was it's, the 800 kind of feel maybe a little bit helpless. And that's a lot of times, you know, on the other side, you'll see, you know, people will say, well, why now? Why are they coming out now? Um, you know, they've had... This happened 20 years ago. What, you know, why are we just hearing about it? And a lot of times it does take a few women to come together and say, yes, this happened to me also, to feel safe, to feel safe and say that finally now... I can come and bring this about um, because I do think there is some sense of um, embarrassment around it as well. And um, and so I, I okay. agree with that. But um, going back to your question, Mark, um, I think you're right. I think there's definitely a double standard between liberals and conservatives. And I think that Republicans in particular, um, whenever they are confronted with a sexual harassment case, um, they are kind of like lambasted in the media just because of their conservative values. And there was something about a congressman coming out of, you know, his mistress and the whole right, abortion, the abortion thing. thing and he was yeah. totally blasted and rightly so. But I think it's almost like a gotcha kind of moment where with liberals, it's more like you're trying to, in a way, you are complicit because you're not going out and saying anything. But it's more of like a they're always on the same page, whereas Republicans were always wanting to out them. And, and with right. liberals, you kind well, of even I read an article or maybe it was a tweet this morning that, um, you know, SNL was last night and they do the weekend update. Yeah. And there was no mention right. of the Weinstein case. Wow. And uh-huh. Really? Kind of like 
really. And Wonder Woman <laughs> like, was the the host. Yeah. So oh, Gail, Gail Gadot. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I have to take um, a look at that. I I thought she was terrific in Wonder Woman. She was yeah. really amazing. But again, it's kind of like that would have been front page. Like that would mm-hmm. they would have opened with that on SNL. True. You know, they would have so, done. Yes. It was a Republican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's harder because again, when you do think of the liberal media, yeah, Harvey Weinstein's a big part of the liberal media as well, giving donations. Um, and it's probably ugh, maybe I shouldn't assume this. Maybe we'll cut this. But you know, at least we'll friendly with Lauren Michael. You know, like <laughs> we're, gonna, <laughs> we're not going to talk. About <laughs> but that. you know, has connections at the top with other media moguls as well. And so it's kind of like, yeah, we won't talk about this until we have the full understanding of right. you know what exactly happened here. Where it's like that's not the case for the conservatives. They well, are but, indicted immediately. Yeah, but I mean, it's pretty clear what happened as far as he's taken a, he's taken a leave of absence. And um, it's all obvious that there's lawsuits been filed. So, okay, we, I want to move on because we're running, uh, we're running a little bit long. But I really appreciate your guys' input, and um, I think this is something that we're going to have to deal with down the road, um, all of us. And you guys are younger than I am, and you're female, so you know it's very possible that you may have this directly in your face at some time. So, um, don't call me if you do. I won't. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, so we're going to move it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're going to go into what are we watching? Um, I just, I, I'm going to be light this week. I've just, I've been still continuing to watch my Star Trek movies. I've been watching all the movies in, in order, and I've been watching The Next Generation, and uh, all, actually all of them. But I want to say that the new Star Trek is freaking fantastic. I, I mean, it, it's still got the. Let's send a high-ranking officer out into a place of danger and, and have her be a hero. But I, I loved it. I, I watched both episodes, both of the pilot episodes, and I thought it was fantastic. So with all due respect to my, uh, my buddy, uh, I don't know what you watched, but I, I saw a great, great uh, beginning to this series, and I have high hopes for it. The woman who plays the captain or who will play the captain ultimately is from The Walking Dead. The uh, African American woman. I don't watch oh, The Walking Dead, but uh, Michaeline. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And I'm she's she's Dead. fantastic <laughs> in it. And then Michelle Yeoh plays yeah. a, a part. Um, no, I like the uh, the male Jason Isaacs. Yes, I love him. <laughs> she gets um, up closer to the microphone. I Mike, <laughs> I think Mike, yeah, Mike. I think she's on her. She, I think he's on her list. I think he's. What's that celebrity list that you can do at one? Yeah, the hall pass. Pick, yeah, the hall pass. I know. I brought that up to Mike recently because I was kind of like, "Oh, Idris Elba is mine," and he and I had to explain to him what a hall pass was, and he was like, "Oh, I would never do that." And I was like, "Okay, well, Idris Elba is mine." <laughs> and I was like, "So." <laughs> All right, Mike. We'll work out it. We'll work out a couple Jason hall passes Isaacs, for you. He, he's like. Number two? Um, short list. <laughs> number two? Who's number one? No. Idris Elba. Uh, oh, Idris. Oh, my God. Yeah. I would do Idris Elba. <laughs> Holy shit. That is a man's man. I love that guy. So, um, so all right. So, what are you guys watching? I just finished Atlanta. Oh, which I'm yeah. A little, it's a terrific series. It's really good. I'm a little late on the bandwagon. Oh, that's all right. Mary Claire won't yeah, watch it till there. next year. <laughs> oh, that's on my list, though. Well, I'm going to make it. They won a lot for the Emmys. I know. Donald it's on Lover, my I watched Wanford The Handmaid's Tale, directing. and Atlanta's next. Yes. Yeah, and Atlanta's definitely worth it. Yeah. There's a lot of really great writing. It's a fresh perspective. The, the voice is new. Um, there's, it's avoided of all cliches and all traps that you usually get from these type of male-centric shows, which I really like. And the cool thing is he's not afraid. He mixes it up. So I'm mm. really excited to see what he does next. Cool. 
MC, what are you looking so, at? So the third season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend premieres <laughs> shortly. I'm a big fan of that show. And it's kind of one of those cult shows that people... Like recently, a friend of mine was kind of like, "Oh yeah, I watched an episode of Crazy Ex Girlfriend." I was like, "Wait, you know, you know that show? Like, you watch that <laughs> Talk show? Talk about it in the open." Yeah. Uh, okay, I love that show. It's kind of like is it, so it's a, is it one of those shows that you either like uh, or or it hate? Is. I mean, it's, it's so a it's, love it's, hate. It's uh, it's kind of like a romantic musical comedy drama. Yeah, so it covers a lot of different genres. Roma- wait a minute, uh, romantic comedy musical drama. Yes. Yes. Wow. Um, and yeah, I still think it's kind of like a cult show. I mean, it really, I mean, the premise is sort of like the girl meets a boy, girl loses boy, and then girl goes on kind of a cross country journey a decade later to get the boy back. Um, and, cool. uh, and so unbeknownst to him. So she travels across country to... Where does she go? Like Corona? New York? Or no, where to West Covina. She knows where uh, West Covina, California. And then, I mean, there are songs built into yeah. the episode, so there's a great song about West Covina, California that I sing <laughs> occasionally. Um, and um, and it stars uh, Rachel Bloom, who... Um, oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh, yes, okay. Yeah, I love Rachel Bloom. Up. Yeah, she's great. She I mean, she... They she's have a, amazing. They have a bigger writer's room, but she uh, co-writes with... Um, uh, the woman who did a Devil Wears Prada, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but um, she, yeah, I mean, broke out from YouTube. Um, yeah, have you seen that that YouTube video of her talking about the science fiction author, author Ray Bradbury? Oh yeah, yeah. fuck me, Bray, Ray Bradbury. That was <laughs> yeah. that I knew about that like three years ago, and I've been posting it everywhere. That is a great, great video. Yeah. Oh my god, I just find the show is very fun, but it's yeah. also kind of real and entertaining, and um, and I really, it looks like a lot of work to, to write yeah. and do that show. Sure, sure. Um, and so I'm, I'm a big fan, and I actually, I came about that um, show because she won the Golden Globe, not this past year, but the year before um, for the show, and I was like, for what show is this Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? And so I watched it and binged it, and I actually watched it with Mike, and he liked it a lot, too. It just is, they, I think there are good characters there, uh, good storylines, and They're I fun. laughed it's at it. It's one season. It's a fun show. It uh, she's she's really amazing. Yeah, fuck me, Ray Bradbury was, is is on top. I mean, I just you know, oh my God, what a great idea. So, it's not something I could write, but uh, I loved it. So, um, okay, well, uh, anything else, guys? You want to you want to mention anything? Honorable uh, mention. I wanted to mention Will and Grace. Oh yeah, because that uh, came back after what eleven yeah, years. Yeah, eleven years. Which I think is I haven't pretty... seen it yet. Okay. It's, I watched the premiere. It's, it's very much of the times, which I think is really interesting because this whole nostalgia thing is coming back. And the show is like full on getting all this. I think it's already going for its, or they're guaranteed a second season they did already. That even yeah. The premiere. Yeah, they I remember Mary Claire. There's a lot of it, yeah. uh, buzz around it. So, yeah. what do you yeah, think? It did. I felt like it fell kind of right back into place. Um, I do. and But I, I was interested as to, yeah, how it was more of the times. Um, you know, what's happening now in the world, especially with politics, they address that immediately within mm-hmm. the episode. They actually go to the White House mm. in the first episode. In the first episode? episode? Yes. Wow. Um, she's brought on to, you know, she's an interior designer, and Melania is looking to revamp. Very realistic. Very realistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so she's brought in, but then, you know, she's kind of questioning, like, everything against my moral, you know, to, to make this type of decision, but it's a great opportunity. Like, how do I reconcile that with, you know, my politics and my views? Um, but you have you see both sides of it, um, and I do think there there were a, a good amount of laughs, so I was willing to to go forth um, and watch the second episode. Yeah, I yeah. had fun revisiting it. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering what would happen if they brought back Friends. I I'm not sure it would work because uh, yeah. when you're saying it's of the time, 
I, I feel like Will and Grace is very much like that also. So Yeah, it started out as a progressive show, right. and it's still continuing on that path. So mm-hmm. Well, there's so much difference. Uh, I think, uh, if I remember, it focused on gay and lesbian mm-hmm. uh, lifestyles and rights and things like that. And that's changed quite a bit in the intervening years. So their core um, concept may be may not be as uh, as fresh or as, as tight yeah. as it used to be. It started off with like introducing LGBT characters and and I think what's interesting is now they're not so much as like leaving off but they're going into the times which is technology and how do you have relationships and and what makes them meaningful and and I think it's actually answering an even more important question today so that um you know how do we contend with having um the whole politics and relationships and i think it's 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 a really interesting show and i think it's funny and i think there's really talented writers on it so yeah i think you know job number one in any uh situation comedy is comedy right so as long as it's funny it doesn't necessarily have to be as cutting edge as it Mm -hmm. used to be um although that does lose something so so um okay great guys thank you very much um this week i'm going to talk on the coen brothers and uh, some of their movies, um, their brothers, obviously, different. One is taller than the other. There's three years between their ages. Out of high school, each pursued wildly different paths in wildly different colleges. And yet, when they make movies, they think as one person, Joel and Ethan, the Coen brothers. Joel is older and married to actress Frances McDormand, and both have certainly met, left their mark on American and world cinema. Since her first feature, they have been celebrated and have never shrunk from paving new ground, which most times succeeds both critically and commercially, but has also seen failure on both accounts. Born in Minnesota, their mother was an art historian and their father an economist at different universities. The boys started at an early age to make movies. The first film, shot on Super 8, as so many young filmmakers of the time used, was called, oddly enough, Henry Kissinger, Man on the Go. Foreshadowing the joyfully joyful disparity of their output in later years, they then made an homage to the movie Naked Prey, which starred Cornell Wilde, called Zymers in Zambia. Their lives diverged out of high school. To give you an idea how different they were at the time, Joel's senior thesis was a 30-minute film called Soundings, while Ethan's senior thesis at Princeton was a 41-page essay called Two Views of Wittgenstein's Later Philosophy. How's that? But their love and appreciation of film combined with their disparate world views has created a genius team of filmmakers whose first feature in 1984 garnered instant praise and rewards. I remember seeing Blood Simple on VHS. There was no way I could have imagined it was a first film by any stretch. From the opening scene on that dark, deserted highway and the clip-clop of windshield wipers, I was riveted. I didn't know at the time, but the Coens were using a film technique called mise-en-scene, which means basically uh, placing it on the stage. Wikipedia defines this as everything that appears before the camera and its arrangement, composition, sets, props, actors, costumes, and lighting. Mise-en-scene also includes the composition, which consists of the positioning and movement of the actors as well as objects in the shot. And certainly this was true of Blood Simple. The entirety of the film contributed to its power. Blood Simple is a noir classic centering on a woman's attempt to flee an abusive husband and her manipulation of a nice guy to accomplish that. Legendary character actors Dan Hedaya and M. Emmett Walsh play prominently in the drama, Hedaya playing the husband and Walsh playing the corrupt private detective. Frances McDormand, who uh, Ethan later married and won an Academy Award for Fargo, is the woman in question. Blunt Simple is an unassuming tale told in increasingly twisty fashion. It's both noir and a bit of horror, especially the way the narrative is presented. Devices are delivered to the stage and not explained at the moment, but then later play into the story. 
For example, while McDormand and her apparent savior, actor John Getz, are sleeping together in a cheap motel, outside the window several flashes of light burst and frame the sleeping couple. Very creepy. Later we find out that these flashes are from a camera used by Walsh to document the couple's infidelity. However, it's not just the photos of them sleeping that Walsh shows uh, um, the husband, Hedea. That would be too easy, and I won't spoil it by telling you any more, but check it out. A second feature that I've never seen called Crime Wave followed Blood Simple and was directed by legendary horror maven Sam Raimi and written by the Coens and Raimi. As far as I can tell, it's only available for sale on DVD. In 1987, the Coens released one of my favorites, Raising Arizona, starring Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter. This film blew me away. It was hilarious and so unique. After I saw the film, I remember going to sleep and running the lines and the scenes over and over in my head. Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, which was written when the Coens were suffering from writer's block over Miller's Crossing, and the Hutsucker Proxy quickly followed. Barton Fink won the 1991 Cannes Film Festival Palme d'Or and started a collaboration with Academy Award-winning cinematographer Roger Deakins, who just finished Blade Runner 2049. Fargo, uh, starring Francis McDormand as a pregnant sheriff living in Minnesota, who is trying to solve an apparent kidnapping of William H. Macy's wife, which was faked, by the way, and who punctuates her sentence with, oh, yeah, betcha, or Dard Tootin, well, came next. And that really, really put the Coens on the map. Then followed, of course, the legendary The Big Lebowski, starring Jeff Bridges as the dude. The dude. Um, besides Bridges, the film starred Steve Buscemi and John Goodman, who also appeared in many other Cohen films. The film Lebowski was initially poorly received, but has gone on to achieve cult status. An annual festival called the Lebowski Fest celebrates the philosophy of dudism. And if you want to laugh, check this out. Although it, there are some, some very interesting tenets. I mean, it's just basically going with the flow, being cool-headed, and taking it easy. So the dude abides, right? You can see both uh, Ethan's philosophical and Joel's filmatic influences clearly in this film, which continue to make their movies so strong and entertaining. Uh, Shadi, we talked about theme and class, and these are two filmmakers who really push the envelope of theme. I mean, but also make, I think, very accessible films to support their themes. Um, yeah. yeah, and I know that's something you're very interested in. I'm always, always, always trying to remind myself of theme. Theme, right. Very important. By the way, I don't think I did a good job explaining theme to you from the last film that we watched. Oh, so, Beasts of No Yeah, so I'm going to – there's actually probably 20 themes in there. but There's um, a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was, a, that was an interesting film. Um, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, starring George Clooney, took the film world by storm. It is loose, based loosely on the Homerian Odyssey but takes place in Mississippi in the, 20, in the 30s. Sorry. It sparked a bluegrass hit called Man of Constant Sorrow. Do you guys know that song? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great song. <laughs> Uh, perhaps no other film team in the world could have made another one of their hits, No Country for Old Men, based on a Cormac McCarthy novel. Again, combining elements of the Cohen's, uh, Cohen's talent for crime drama and their fine philosophical sense, the phone, film was both a commercial and critical success. It has a 94% fresh rating at Rotten Tomatoes and won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, all of which were given to the Cohen's, as well as Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. The Coens, as Roderick James, were also nominated for Best Editor. So they, they edit together, and then they put a – that's a fake name or something. I've not, I never knew that. I love the movie, but it does, however, frustrate a lot of people who can't seem to wrap, wrap their heads around the ending and the general concepts of a Harvey R. Bondem's character's moral universe. This is some deep subtext that the Coens deliver so, so well in film. Uh, did you guys 
like No Country for Old Men? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I remember being blown away seeing that in theater. That was a year of really good films. Yeah. Like, I remember seeing a number of films that year and being really, really astounded. But that one in particular. Um, but I understand what you're saying. Like, their work is very meticulously well-crafted, and it feels meaningful. And so you're sort of like, I should take something away from this. What is it? <laughs> what am I missing here? Why it? am I so stupid? Uh, yeah, and sometimes I do hear them say, like, well, people read a little bit too much into our, our writing and our work. But I do, th- I mean, that, that last speech, it's like, I think it means something a little bit different to everyone mm. um so it can be accessible but yeah there are some times where it's sort of like what is it what's the takeaway here but it always feels meaningful <laughs> well it, it, a simple man was very meaningful it's based on the book of job i mean they always That's a very personal film right to those two right so and they like, have yeah. yes they have a, a they do have a goal for a lot of this stuff but you're right mary claire a lot of times a cigar is just a cigar as freud would say right so um of course, True Grit, a remake of the John Wayne classic starring Jeff Bridges, was also a huge success for the Coens, garnering a massive 10 Academy Awards. I love that movie. I, I did too. I, I, like, I really, and I had never seen the original True Grit. Um, and I, when I went back and watched it, I was like, uh, I, I think I prefer the, first, or the Coen Brothers version. I really like 10 that Academy movie. Awards? I mean, come on. I, you, you know, that. what else do you have to accomplish after something mm-hmm. like that? So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, it, a, that, that's a movie. If they had, uh, and this is sort of the Academy of Politics, if they had not won, like the previous, I don't know if it was the previous year or the year before for No Country for All Men, mm. that movie would have won Best Picture. Yeah. But they had already been sort of awarded for their, for you know, for their work. So a lot of times they like to do somebody new or whatever. Because mm. I think, I think, uh, what won that year? Uh, the King's Speech, I think, oh. won that year. Oh, that year. was a great That's movie. That's a great movie, too. That but was, I do yeah. think any other year, a True Grit would have won. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think they're both great films, so... Um, so many of their films were also not so well received, either critically or commercially. Intolerable Cruelty, The Hudsucker Proxy, The Lady Killers. These were not wonderful films or yeah. commercial successes. I, I did not. They fly under the radar, but they're still yeah. good. They're, they're, they're worth watching. Good. Funny. Well, it's, it's really it's kind of like a farce. I love I like that movie a lot. It's very <laughs> underrated. I think it's that's another well crafted film also. Yeah, let's face it. A bad Coen Brothers film is better than most, better than ninety percent of it anybody is. else's. Their most recent uh, film, Hail Caesar, is another case in point. Starring arguably the number one male star in the world, George Clooney, it went down in flames in 2016, even though it also starred James Brolin, Francis McDormand, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, Channing Tatum, Ralph Fiennes, and Jonah Hill. Suburbicon, due to be released this month, is up next starring Matt Damon, Julianne Moore, and Oscar Isaac, who I, I really like him, who also starred in Inside Llewellyn Davis. The Coens wrote the original script in 1986, and George Clooney directs. And I like George Clooney's direction. Mm-hmm. I really I do. Uh, do. I like him as a director. It remains to be seen how it works or doesn't work. But unfortunately, advanced word of mouth isn't so great on this mm-hmm. film. So we'll see. We'll Saw see. the trailer. Yeah, the you did. Was interesting. Yeah. It is, but you know, you've come. I feel like you've come so far with the Coens. Like you trust them no matter what, and so. Uh, well, it still might get. It still might get recut, or they do these test screenings yeah. and change. I a was lot surprised of that, stuff. that it was the Coens actually. Well, only it out of their wheelhouse. Well, 1986. That was when they wrote the original, yeah. so it might have been. And it isn't them directing. It's right. Directing, right. So yeah, that's so that true. That's very true. That that's a good point. What I what I truly love about the Coens is that although many consider them geniuses, me included, you can see a natural progression to their films, starting with the Super 8 shorts they made and continuing on through the Academy Awards they now own. There's a pattern of successes and failures that points clearly to an evolution of both men as they sought to become better and better filmmakers. 
Never settling for what they just accomplished, but constantly learning and pushing themselves into new realms is the true measure of their genius. The Coens struggle like we all do with concept, character, plot, theme, but they learn and continue until they get it right or fail and then learn from that too, usually hitting it out of the park on the next film after a failure or even the one after that. That's an artist because if you're not failing, you're not trying. Babe Ruth at one time had the major league home run record, but he also had the record for most strikeouts. In the Coens, geniuses, though they may be, don't always get it right, but they always do get one thing right. They never stop pushing themselves or their art. Like all things Cohen, they continue to experiment, test, and explore uncertain film styles and concepts. And in all that, another thing is certain. The brothers, Joel and Ethan Cohen, their successes, their experiments, and everything in between, like the dude and the wonderful movies they've created, will most certainly abide. Um, so I loved them from the very first movie, which was Blood Simple. Um, if you've never seen it, it's a wonderful, wonderfully done – It not everybody universally loves it, but I did. Um, did anybody – did you guys happen to see it? Did anybody see it? I've seen probably all the movies except for that one. Mm. <laughs> I've so not seen that one. Uh, I will make a point. But I always, for the Coens, I mean I always come back to them. I think for their – they have great characters. Um, and their film span – it's really interesting how they can do this. This is really tough. I mean, they span different genres and all different tones. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Um, while they still, but they still have sort of those signature clear markers, you know, of, of their signature. You know, they have sort of these interesting rhythms or tones or I don't even like visual flares. And so they're always fun to watch. Yeah, because you're always discovering something a little bit new. Um, and uh, I think that's really unique in a talent yeah and i think they have really they can play to both audiences the artistic indie crowd and then the commercial appeal with having recognizable actors so right. i think they're pretty broad in that aspect. and and that's my point about indie films always is that i think you can still tell a very compelling story and still get out the indie tropes or whatever you want i, I don't think there's any excuse to make a movie that's boring yeah. and uh, too many people i think rely on on the you know the the subtext or the or the mm -hmm. motif, or the milieu, or whatever, or the mezzesan, or whatever, mezzesan, uh, which is a term I just learned <laughs> while I was really? doing this. Yeah, I didn't. I never knew that. I mean, I knew what it was, but yeah, that's the first thing we learned. Yeah, I learned film the school, or <laughs> film school, but you know, in my film classes, it was yeah. like definition of this. And when you read the Wikipedia, I was like, yep, that's definitely been on a note card before, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> All right, we're gonna. We're, well, thank you guys. We're gonna move on to uh, what are, or to uh, this week in film history. Uh, Mary Claire has done some research on this. Um, I'm glad we discussed the Coens this week because the anniversary of No Country for Old Men is coming up. It's been 10 years. Oh. It premiered in 2007. Oh yeah, and you mentioned this, but based on Cormac McCarthy's novel No Country for Old Men, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin, it won four Academy Awards, um, including Best Adapted Screenplay. And there are really kind of like three major players in the script. The villain, of course, Anton Chigurh, um, who is Javier, Javier Bardem, the sheriff, and then Josh Brolin's character, Llewellyn Moss, who is kind of what starts the story. I mean, he's a poor man who lives with his wife and one day comes across a bad or a drug deal gone wrong and uh and he tries to take the remaining money for himself so he's kind of on the run with you know everybody after him um with Shigur trying to take it away from him and the sheriff trying to interrupt you know kind of his ruthless murder trail um but um but it really is a masterpiece in time place like the character's choices 
fate, I think, for sure. I mean, there are a lot of different themes that are explored. And I think it was kind of a turning point for the Coens as well. Like, they had been known for Fargo, and they had just come off of, like, The Big Lebowski and Talbot Kuroti. So they had kind of were trying to find a little bit of their path to commercial uh, success, and they really got it right here. Um, and uh, and I, it's a very universal question. <laughs> you know, like, you find a bag of money you know, in a you, car, what do you do? And... I know. I, I mean, I mean that movie is. When I think of that movie, I think of yeah, those characters and their motivations. I think of, of course, the terrifying villain, um, <laughs> and then the suspense that's in that film. Like I remember sitting in the movie yeah. theater, just your my heart like kind of pounding out as you're hoping or thinking. The scene he's with gonna... the convenience store clerk oh my gosh. freaked me out so bad. And that's early, so it really yeah. establishes that villain is like. <laughs> It really is a flip yeah. of a coin in terms of. Well, that's yeah. his. That's his. Uni- that's a, a representation of the universe. The universe is a flip of a coin, and that's why. But there's there's rules that he has. That's why he goes back and kills the girl after mm-hmm. after that. So yeah. Yeah. So um, so so that uh, again premiered ten years ago, and wow. um, still a movie that I, I think will hold up and will continue to hold up. I mean, I, I again, I think uh, that villain, I mean, is on the top 10 list for, you know, movie villains. Bad guys, uh, yeah. Bad guys, for sure. Well, I, I think when we talked a little bit about this in reference to uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in class, I think the Coens got the idea for that because uh, that's what they use. The cow. Yeah, that, the cow. That uh, that was a frightening. Pressure yeah. That yeah. Was, mm-hmm. It's just a bolt. It's just compressed air. Yeah. but. Yeah, talk about a weird ass. That's another thing about them is you you don't see a lot of scenes in their movies that you've seen in other films. Right. Yeah. We also talked about starting the film or how to open with, um, you know, hope hoping a movie and uh, whether to start with a villain or with your main character or whatnot. And this one does open with some narration, but the first person you see is Anton Chigurh. Mm. Um, so, and he really is the one that's you know, inciting a lot of what's going on within the script. And, um, yeah, that just narrative. came up in class on mm-hmm. Tuesday. So I wish mm-hmm. I would, I would like to, did you mention that? Yeah, it was oh, me. You did? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm talking about it because there was some sense of, well, I, it was a discussion. It was sort of like, who, who should you open with? Should you open with your, your villain? Can you do that? Is that acceptable? Or can you do it with your main character? Right. Um, and I was kind of arguing for both. I think there have been a lot of great openings. Absolutely. Um, with villains and with your main character. And so this proves my point a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but other than that, so, um, so kind of in light of, I don't know, football season and uh, oh, the NFL, yeah. uh, Friday Night Lights premiered 11 years ago uh, this the, week the on TV NBC, or? the TV show oh, on okay. NBC. Uh, it ran for five seasons and was really a favorite amongst fans and, and critics and really it earned four consecutive Emmy nods for outstanding casting for, for a drama series um, and has pulled a lot of bigger names from that series. Now, you know, Connie Brighton. Kyle Chandler. I mean, there are endless amounts of people who've come out of that show as well. Um, Taylor Kitsch. Uh, yeah, Taylor Kitsch. The, um, the, uh, Adrian, I can't remember her name, but she's in uh, The Orville. Oh, Adrian Palacki. Yeah, she's in The yeah. Orville. Um, I oh. mean, so many people yeah, have come out of that show. Um, and it's, it's one oh. uh, outstanding writing for drama series. M- Minka for the, Kelly. For the series. Minka Kelly, yeah, for the... Uh, Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, too. Yeah. Um, but uh, he won. Right, the writer Jason Catman's won the outstanding writing for the drama series in Peter 2011. Berg, director um, for the series finale. But I think you know it's a show about ambition, about passionate kids who want things, and who, with the help of their you know really inspiring adults, overcome a variety of different obstacles to get them. And it really builds kind of a world that, when confronted with the ugliness of things like poverty and closed-mindedness. Um, 
that good, good mindedness is what matters. Um, you know, and, and it really is these athletes, you know, aren't only seeking glory, but, and fame, but also they're, they're seeking honor. And so, um, so I know it's a favorite, um, it's one of my mother's favorite shows. Um, <laughs> Your mother but, has great taste. <laughs> she, really she watches everything. Uh, but really, truly that's, that's one of her favorite shows. And I do, I mean, there are a lot of like lines that you think of, um, you know, even like clear eyes, full heart, can't, can't lose. lose. You, know, when you think of, Friday Night Lights, Forever Texas, like all of the above. Um, so, yeah, that's a as a football fan fanatic, uh, it gets a lot of things really right. But what what's amazing about the show is the characters are incredibly yeah. well well defined. I know it's your favorite. It's of your one favorite. of my favorites, and I actually put off watching it for a while because just of because of football yeah, because you it was a football i show, don't right? know anything mm-hmm. about football, and I felt okay. If this show is all about football, then what's I'm not going to understand it, but that's so not true. Just because of what you said, Mark, that the characters are really at the forefront and football is kind of the background Absolutely. scenery. So. Yeah. Yeah. It provides the, the B story. Um, but the A story in my mind is those kids, yeah. the families, the aspirations. I mean, if you watch the first episode, there's such a startling uh, uh, event that happens that shows you that it's really not about football. It's really, right. it's really incredible. I'm not going to tell you. But, uh, <laughs> well, they always say like the the kind of like hashtag relationship goals started with uh, Coach oh, yeah. uh, Coach and Tammy Taylor. Um, that they were kind of it's a couple true. that really mutually respected one another um, and and had you know sort of that great communication um, to have a great family unit. And, so. and I think the writing on that show is especially authentic. Absolutely. Um, do you they, like the Do you like the directing style too? I love the directing yeah. style. I thought I wouldn't just because it's a very documentary feel, but I think it's in tandem with the the writing. The writing, it's yeah. very realistic, and so it doesn't feel gimmicky at all. Yeah, the coach Kyle Chandler just he just comes across so well. So does Connie Brighton. Yeah. So does so do they all. Yeah. I mean, the the younger the quarterback who becomes the quarterback of the team and his friend are incredible together. They're just really amazing. Yeah, every character has an authentic voice. Mm-hmm. Even like the stuttering all the time from the kids. You're like, oh, that's how 16-year-olds talk. They don't always know what they're going <laughs> right. to say. And, and I love that. So it's very special. And right. There hasn't been a show like it. So I miss it a lot. Know, I know. <laughs> I well, I, I'm, I keep hoping for Taylor Kitsch to break out too. Because, I know, it's yeah. too bad. Yeah, I don't know if he's he just really great on that show. Movies or well, John, or did is, you see but... John Carter? No. I, no, no I... <laughs> <laughs> It was actually not. It was actually good. I enjoyed it. I no, because I like him as an actor too. But I feel like he he's a little late sometimes too. I don't mm-hmm. know why. Maybe he's the secondary person that they're calling or whatever. But even because he was in True Detective, but he was right. in the season that, yeah. You know, he was the in second, second one. season. Yeah. yeah, and I'm kind of yeah. You really want to find the right piece for him, and it's that too is bad one. He is talented, and he's gorgeous too. As one gorgeous human yeah. being, I mean, and, who's on your hall pass list? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't want to take out 50% of the population. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, and it, uh, it, that was great. I, I love both of your choices. And uh, certainly Friday Night Lights is very appropriate right now with high school, college, and the pros going off. So I'm, I'm sad because it's mid-season for half of that. Oh, which, my God. Oh, my God. I'm already jonesing. So, all right. Um, so do we have some questions from – I have uh, – we had a – I have a recording – Uh, any information would be helpful. Thank you. 
Okay, Jamie, thanks for your question. We'll, we'll, I will get to that in my last segment because we talk about openings in the last segment. So, uh, sorry, Mary Claire, I didn't mean to. No, jump that's okay. Over. Yeah, so I'll start with our first viewer question. So, our listener question: um, When writing your scripts, do you take into account market trends, or do you just write what you think should be in the market? Okay, so the the if you try to write to market, you're going to end up being too late. Because once something's released, it's been in production for at least a year. And so by the time it gets out, you're the last pe person that knows if you're a viewer. If you're in the business or you're reading Variety or you're keeping up with like Deadline or uh, what's the one that you like, Film Threat? No, not Film Threat. Um, oh, Slash Films. Yeah, there's another one you were talking about. Oh, uh, Film School Rejects. Yeah, Film School Rejects. If you're keeping up with those trends, you might be able to jump onto something, but Honestly, you're, you're always going to be too late. So my advice is if you – in order to, I think, make it in this business, you have to be unique. Um, you have to be unique enough with your voice. People have to be able to trust you um, with their material to know that you're going to deliver on it but also to bring something fresh to it. So I would always recommend that you write what's in your heart, what's in your head. If it happens to dovetail into a trend, that's fine. But – um, the trend right now is a lot of low-budget, uh, single-location or limited-location films, and that's a different type of trend. That's a, mostly a trend that recognizes that the markets aren't out there for films like they used to be um, because uh, the box office is basically turned over to comic book movies, big event movies, and, and very, very well-done independent films. So if you're going to write something, write a limited location, but don't follow the trend of, let's say, you know, Let's say giant lobsters suddenly becomes a trend. Don't write giant lobsters. Write giant crawfish. I don't know. Whatever it is. You're giving away all my material. Oh, gosh. I'm giving away my story. Nobody write about giant crawfish. No. Well, you know what? Now you, now, you have, now you have to write it. Now you have to get out there first. Well, that's, that's what I would recommend, too, is finding what's missing maybe in the market. Um, just because, you know, I just read an article recently about, you know, after Stranger Things came out and that was, you know, kind of 80s centric and there was some nostalgia around sort of that era. They were getting like a lot of production companies were getting 80 script after 80 yeah. script after 80 yeah. script. And they were kind of like, and even if they were great, it is sort of like we're doing this. You know, a lot of people are doing this or has been in production. Exactly. So we need we want to see what's new. We want to see what's not in there. So tell a story from your unique perspective or your voice, because that's always what's going to sell as well. Yeah. OK. Another question. I have a question. Uh-oh. Shadia. So I want to know, how do you avoid writing cliches? <laughs> well. I, I would like to know that too. Okay. <laughs> so it's like, it's like that old Steve Martin routine, how to become a millionaire. First get a million dollars. Just don't write the damn cliches. Uh, no, I, the thing is, is like anything else, it comes with experience. Um, if you take a writing class um, or do a workshop, a lot of times people will alert you to the fact that something's a cliche. But if you if you've seen I can't even think of a I mean there's a there's websites, you know, with film tropes on them and and there's on TV tropes like um uh, you know, oh, here's one that I hate, which is hi, I got the information. Uh call me, I'll be at the warehouse at three o'clock. Mm -hmm. Don't no, you're not gonna give me the information now on the phone right now because you're not gonna be there at three o'clock. You're gonna be fucking dead. <laughs> so so you, if you see that, if you see it a lot, don't write that. Don't write what you what. It, it's hard not to write what you don't, what you uh, what you know. It's hard not to write what you know. It's even harder to write what you think 
uh, is going to work in a script because you've seen it before. So cliches because can become cliches because they work. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do a cliche, try to make it different. Like, for instance, um, I just read a horrible story about um, a young woman who was attacked by her mother's um, second husband. It was called Dirty John. It was a series in the L.A. Times. And she remembers watching The um, the Walking Dead and learning from The Walking Dead that if you stab something in the brain, it, it dies. Um, and so when this guy attacked her, she, she was able to get a hold of his knife and stab him in the eye. Oh my gosh. And so because he was going to kill her, and he had his knife in a Taco Bell bag, which I think is that's brilliant because uh, you can carry that around. Nobody mm-hmm. will know, right? So – if I was writing a scene with a woman being attacked, I might use that. I might use the stabbing in the eye because I think that's particularly gruesome. Plus the idea of putting a knife in a Taco Bell bag. So y- you have to look for other areas besides what you're normally used to. Like you put a knife in a guy's belt or in a guy's uh, boot or even on you know in his hand, and it seems like a cliche when a girl gets attacked. But if you go with these other things, and this is a horrible thing to say, but I mean you take it from – Real life. You take it from things you're reading. And, and so that's the other thing is don't settle. Read. Read. Watch movies. Right. I think that's why cliches happen is because they're easy. It doesn't yeah. require sort of It comes naturally to you. You don't realize yeah. you're writing it. And that's, right. that is the problem. Sometimes it, it is unconscious. And so you're, yeah. you're not fully thinking through because you're like, that would work. That's easy. That's a solution. Because a lot of times people don't want to push themselves in their writing um, because writing is hard. <laughs> and so writing you is can hard. take an easy way out. It's like this makes sense, this would happen, this seems natural, but uh, but it's not surprising, it's not shocking, it doesn't rise above, and so the Taco Bell thing is interesting. Yeah, it was a, <laughs> it was, like and, Chick-fil-A or something. And it, <laughs> and it was at the very end of the series, so I had read, the, it was a five or six segment series, and I was kind of fascinated by it, because this guy was also um, one of these guys who was able to convince people, despite the facts that they had in their hands about him, he was able to convince them that that wasn't true which I thought was also very interesting. Talk about a true sociopath. But anyway, yeah, so just, just try to do something a little bit different. Try to, try to alter whatever that scene is in your head to, to be your own unique for, version. Like, like uh, I, I remember writing a scene about a woman who was attacked years and years ago uh, where in, she didn't have a key fob to open her car, and so the killer put toothpicks in the lock to keep her from opening her door. So she went out to her car, to the parking lot, and tried to open her car with the with the key, and the toothpicks were preventing that from happening. So that was a kind of a result of thinking, how would I, I guess, putting myself in that place, how would I stop somebody from getting into a car if they didn't have a remote control? So I think it really helps when you think through your characters as well. Um, you good know, point. Is this something my character would do who is truly my character is he somebody who has researched toothpicks or you know ways to, <laughs> to you know what i mean but there are but truly truly when especially like your surroundings like you really have to live in your world to be able to i think fully develop it and make it unique um that's a so. good those are good really good points really good points so all right um so the question was about intros and openings and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue into uh, something I call the contract with the audience, which is my term, copyright, trademark, so don't steal it, but um, this is my, my version of it. Um, before any film gets made, a script is written, of course, but before that, a concept. Sometimes a concept is decided for the writer, like in the case of a comic book. 
When I went to see the first Iron Man movie with Robert Downey Jr., I already knew what it was about, even though if I didn't know the specifics. I had read the comics, I was familiar with the character, and even if I wasn't familiar, there was a ton of advanced buzz about the film and trailers that showed very clearly what type of movie it was. So walking in, I already knew what was I was going to see in general. It occurred to me in my intro class that started on Thursday um, that having known what the audience was going to see, in other words, the comic book hero, the writer had an unusual luxury of having not having to compel the audience or establish a tone until much, much later. If you remember the film, Tony Stark is in Afghanistan in a Humvee with a few soldiers. Your first glimpse of him is his hand to holding a whiskey glass filled with ice and booze. He's larger than life already because he's confident, snappily dressed, funny, and charming. So in some senses, you're introduced to a very interesting character, even if he isn't Iron Man. The Humvee is hit by an IED, the caravan stops, fighting ensues, rocket explodes, Stark's injured. He's taken to a hideout, displayed on camera, surgically repaired by another prisoner, and then ordered to build one of his rockets for the rebel leader. So Iron Man? Eh, Not so much. I mean, where is he exactly? Point in fact, it isn't until a full 35 minutes into the film where before you actually see an Iron Man, and that's the old Iron Man, the Golden Age Iron Man, which follows the original comic book fairly well. So that's all good, right? It's faithful to the comic book, which is what aficionados want. But what if no one knew what Iron Man was about? What if there were no trailers, no previous source material, no word of mouth? In other words, what if it was just a spec script? Would the title lead someone to think it was about rocker Ozzy Osbourne? Or would any executive really hang around for 35 pages to see Iron Man become Iron Man once they realized that Ozzy wasn't hitting the stage? By the way, who was writing that Ozzy Osbourne biopic? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have dibs on that. So for most of us, openings are essential. I call it, and you can capitalize these words in your mind, or maybe Toby can insert some echoey effects here, um, the contract with the audience. During the intro class on Thursday, I played several movie openings, including Matrix, a script so complicated that the Wachowski siblings had to create a graphic novel to explain it. By the way... Uh, We are, OC Screenwriters, uh, doing an event on November 11th with uh, somebody who is expert in viral videos. Uh, Whether you know it or not, Blood Simple was actually – they actually created a trailer, a two-minute trailer for Blood Simple to pitch their investors, and they got money based on the trailer, not based on the script. Uh, And I think it's – Ethan Cohen has said if you call somebody up and say, I want to pitch you an idea for a movie – that's one thing. You may They'll probably say, no, nah, I can't do it. But if you say so, to somebody, hey, I want to bring over a, a little movie and show it to you, that's a completely different. Uh, so come to this event on November 11th. Yeah, look at, you can register at uh, screen, ocscreenwriters.com right. and look for all of our information on plot points, um, on social media. Like We'll be blasting out the event, but definitely come. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's uh, a great guy. So what grabs you about The Matrix isn't really evident. Um, in my opinion. It's somewhere beneath the surface. Listen to the dialogue when Mr. Smith and his minions arrive at the scene. Agent Smith, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, oh shit. Agent Smith, Lieutenant, you were given specific orders. Lieutenant, hey, I'm just doing my job. You give me that jurisdiction, my crap, or my, jur- wait, you give me my, me juris, my diction crap. You can cram it up your ass. See, see why I went into writing and not acting? <laughs> Agent Smith, your orders were for your protection. Lieutenant, I think we can handle one little girl. I sent two units. They're bringing her down now. Agent Smith, no, Lieutenant, your men are already dead. 
I mean, whoa, what the hell does that mean? It, it, I mean, it just, I just got woke, as the kids like to say. If I was an executive reading that, I'd be certainly paying attention. And then we, we finally see Trinity uh, just blow through five cops. But before all that happens is this, this really incredible moment where – and by the way, the way that the Agent Smith gets out of his car, they all look exactly the same. They're very weird and unique. It's just one – talk about mise en scène. Um, so anyway, it's very compelling. Um, but how about a completely different type of movie, like a drama like October Sky? It's a film about Homer Hickam who escaped his mining town to become a NASA engineer. It stars, stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Laura Dern, and Chris Cooper as Homer's father. Again, it's not a character situation per se that establishes what we are about to see, but these images that are in the script of a mining town and its inhabitants looked like what looked like in the 50s is a stunning, past, stunning pastiche of life's pain. Dirty, ugly, scarred, lifeless eyes and shuffling men, a tonal homage to the life that Homer would have had if he stayed. Also, all through the opening images, we have snippets of dialogue about the point of the film, the launching of Sputnik, the first man-made object in outer space. Most of the people are shown listening to the radio. Don't forget, television was still a dream for most at that time. And they are pensive, worried. There's no, there's no dialogue from the characters, but this radio keeps switching back and forth. Like, like it'll say, um, while most of President Eisenhower's advisors, then it switches. If you have just tuned into this special bulletin, then it switches. Washington has confirmed that yesterday on the 4th of October, it switches on the 4th of October, 1957. So you're hearing this, these kinds of constant switches about uh, this news, news broadcast. It would be like if, uh, the, if the Russians landed on Mars suddenly today, what would it be like? And that's what, um, that's what it was like for Sputnik. But instead of being frightened, Homer Hickam uh, is inspired because he hears for the first time we hear a, a, a object from outer space and we actually see it because you can see it pass through the night sky at a certain time. So without hardly any setup, within a few minutes, we've already been conditioned to understand what the movie is about, what the tone, the world, the milieu is, how our character is going to move through the story. Establishing the tone, creating questions in the audience's mind, establishing the world and how we will move in it with our main character that is the contract with the audience, and it's essential to any book, comic book, advertisement, piece of art, song, or script. If you imagine any piece of music or actually pay attention to the ads on TV, read a script rather than watch a movie, you can see it clearly. Remember, and I can't stress this enough, a spec script has no expectations. It arrives to be read without much advance notice. Even if you call your script Wonder Boy, someone may not know or understand that that's a superhero movie. In fact, the book Wonder Boys, which was turned into an amazing film with Michael Douglas, is not about anything supernatural or sci-fi. It's about a midlife crisis for someone who used to be a wonder, Wunderkind, a Wonder Boy writer. It's one of my favorite films, too. So the next time you see or read, see a film or read a great book, look at the openings and see how the writers draw you in. Establish the world, introduce the characters, set the tone. These are all important aspects of an intro to any movie. Um, we are constantly inundated with attention grabbers today, so you cannot afford not to grab someone's attention and pull it in, pull them in. I call it the contract with the audience. You can call it whatever you want as long as you remember to do it. And be inspired and do good work. So does that answer the question? I think so. Intros? 
I think so. We discussed this in class this week, too, because we were reading someone's script that was supposed to be a horror uh, story. Mm. It was really well written, but it really didn't establish what type of story, and it didn't jive with sort of the genre or the tone of a horror film. Um, and so I think it really is important to set that immediately, like what you said, establish the contract with the audience so we know what we're getting. And you have to elevate it, of course, but we have to understand what it is that we're watching. Mm-hmm. Now, your uh, Shadi, your work doesn't always do that. Um, how do you feel about the standard tropes about getting, you know, getting the uh, grabbing the audience, setting the tone? Is that something you aspire to, or is it something you feel you don't need? Um. Well, I know the first ten pages are really important, and um, to grab anyone, you need to get that across the board. For me, what I always try to do is is capture tone. Um, as a filmmaker, that's what I respond to the most. And um, But I think what I really need to work on is getting theme, for mm. sure. Um, I think that's what is going to... Tone captures the audience, for sure, but theme is what keeps them... That keeps our attention throughout the whole thing, and so that's something that I definitely need to work on and, and get better at. Well, and uh, the example I used, October Sky. I don't know if you've seen the mm-hmm. film. It's a wonderful yeah, film. Yeah, I saw it. Um, but it does that very well. It not only establishes the tone, but you can see the theme uh, implicit in the idea that these men are coming up from the depths of hell. That they're you know they're dirty. They're they're tired. They're uh, you know they there's the town itself is ugly and scarred. I mean, it's just an amazing look uh, that conveys both the tone and I think the theme, which is that nobody expects these kids coming out of their high school to go anywhere except down in the mines. And that's very much a part of uh, October Sky and what makes it so inspirational. Okay, so that wraps us up for today. Um, We're going to be back in a couple weeks with a special Halloween edition of uh, Plot Points. Unfortunately, I don't think Mary Claire will be here. I really want to be here for the Halloween special, too. uh, (laughs) Well, you're welcome to, like, dump Mike and just come on. (laughs) I'm just kidding. And uh, Shadia, we're going to ask – I'm going to try to see if we can get a a friend of mine who is a a friend of all of ours. Yeah, he's really – into horror, so so we won't be I asking. I just want to make sure Halloween Town gets its due coverage. <laughs> focus, focus, <laughs> I didn't even know what that movie is. So. <laughs> so Debbie Reynolds, it's great. Debbie uh, Reynolds? Yes, she's the grandmother in okay. the film. I'll uh, tell you what we'll do. We'll we'll Skype you in for a special segment on Hollywood Town. How's that? Holly, Halloween Town. Halloween Town. Okay, whatever. It's spawned a few sequels you, as well. No. Yes, it's on the. It's a Disney Channel film. Oh, oh okay, so okay. Many, Sequels on the Disney Channel. And it came it's a back great too. series. Yeah, exactly. And then they did a ho- or like a TV show around at Halloween Town High. It was uh, one of their most successful. Okay. Disney. We'll films. we'll Skype you in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like to thank Shadia for coming down, spending uh, some time with us, giving up her Sunday morning. Uh, she's you. got a wonderful smile on her face, mm-hmm. which always uh, it makes me feel good. Every time I see her walk into my class, I'm always always fun to talk about movies. Yeah, so. definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's always it's always great to have you here. Yeah, at especially the, from uh, your perspective. Absolutely, you have a unique perspective. Absolutely. So, so uh, Mary Claire, where can these folks uh, get a hold of us? Yes. Yeah, so, if you ever do have a question for us or a comment, you can reach out to us on potpoints.com, or you can call in at nine one nine scripts and leave us a message, and we'll play it on air. And don't forget, uh, November 11th is a um, we're having a brunch with um, with uh, uh, Frank Shindama. Yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't remember his first name. He's a great, great guy. I've talked to him a couple of times. I love him to death already. So I can't wait to hear what he has to say about creating because he does uh, web series 
viral videos, uh, corporate videos for to sell products like series and stuff like that. And he teaches this at Chapman. Uh, he's going to be just a great guest. I can't wait. Um, you can find that information at? At OCScreenwriters.com. Yeah. Or uh, our Facebook page, which is OCScreenwriters.com or LinkedIn or Twitter. We're all over the place. Just type in either my name or OCScreenwriters.com and you'll find us. Um, so thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I had a great time uh, uh, chit-chatting with you guys, and I appreciate your your uh, your take on some of the issues in Hollywood. Um, I hope that one of these days we don't have to talk about any of that. It would be nice to, to grow up and uh, quit uh, using people as objects, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Uh, thanks from uh, Toby. We missed you. Uh, we don't know where you are, but if you're <laughs> on the side of the highway picking up trash in an orange jumpsuit, we still love you. So. Mm-hmm. We'll see you uh, next next time on Plot Points Podcast. Thank you.